Welcome to Health Media Now with award-winning author and host Denise Messenger for a lifetime of health empowerment. Live by being in the pink, meaning P stands for being persistent, I stands for using your intuition, N stands for networking, and K stands for obtaining knowledge. Preserve and protect your health by listening live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time and 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Our guests entertain and share cutting-edge information. They share with you what may have taken years to achieve through experience in their field. Become inspired and motivated. Reach your full potential with fascinating tips and products. Receive a lifetime of benefits from authors, doctors, practitioners, healthcare providers, and learn about exciting new products. You asked for it, and we deliver. Now, here's your host, Denise Messenger. Good afternoon, listeners. Today is December 10th, 2014. We have a wonderful guest. Her name is Dina Rose. And our subject today is on how to teach children good nutrition and eating habits. Dina is the author of the book, It's Not About the Broccoli, Three Habits to Teach Your Kids for a Lifetime of Healthy Eating. She's a sociologist, a parent educator, and an expert in um, research-based ways to help kids learn to eat right. She lives in New Jersey with her husband and her daughter. So now let's bring Dina onto our show. Welcome, Dina. Hi, Denise. I'm so pleased to be here. We're very pleased to have you today. I'd like to start my show out with asking my guest, tell us how you got on the path that you're on today. Well, I am a sociologist by training, and I used to actually specialize in criminology. I was a college professor. And when I was pregnant with my daughter, who's now 13, my mother died of obesity-related illnesses. And that was just really a seminal moment for me because when my daughter was born a few months later, I really was consumed with the question about how I was going to teach her to have a happy eating life. I, I wasn't really so worried about nutrition as I was wanting to make sure that she didn't end up with sort of the difficult food life that my mother, her grandmother had had. And so I ended up thinking a lot about this and turned my attention to watching what other people were doing and ended up reading the literature. And it was through that process that I ended up sort of diving into this and leaving my old world of criminology behind and specializing in this area. It's a probably a gratifying subject to um and and profession to have entered into, I would think. It is. I it's uh it's something that we're all struggling with in one way or another. We all want our kids to be happy and to be healthy and we live in an environment which is really not conducive to good eating habits and so Parents are really stuck trying to figure out how to do this. And one of the things, because I'm a sociologist and not a nutritionist, that I learned is that we need to focus on what the behaviors are that we want our children to learn, and those are habits, as opposed to thinking about nutrition, because nutrition is about the food. 
And when we focus on habits, good nutrition comes along for the ride. But sometimes when we think about the nutrition, we inadvertently teach our kids bad eating habits. And in our society, we spend a lot more time thinking about nutrition than habits, and that's something I'd like to change. Mm. Well, we live in such a fast-paced environment, and a lot of households have two working parents. So kids, a lot of times, are fending for themselves. Well, it is true that there are not the same kind of family meals that maybe there used to be in the past, but for the most part, um, it's really just a simple tweaking of how we think about the food that we're providing and thinking about what we're teaching our children that will make the biggest difference, whether you've got parents working odd hours, whether you've got kids coming and going. This is something that we can easily handle, but we have to make this mind switch from thinking about nutrition to thinking about habits. Okay. So tell us, why is it not about the broccoli? (laughs) Right. Well, parents tell me all the time that if they could just get a few more bites of this vegetable or that vegetable into their kids, then everything would be all right. But, of course, eating habits are about more than eating vegetables, right? Um, We want to not just think about what we're eating, but when we're eating, why we're eating, how much we're eating. So there's a lot more to it than that. And we have to start start thinking about concepts like are we teaching our kids to eat for emotional reasons or we have to think about how to get them to enjoy their food as opposed to consume nutrients because it's not about getting vegetables into kids. That's so true. <laughs> I kind of have a funny story. When I was a kid, my mother would serve us Brussels sprouts <laughs> or asparagus neither mm-hmm. of which I enjoyed particularly. There was a kitchen drawer, and I used to put them in the drawer. <laughs> <laughs> and so one day she went and opened the drawer? <laughs> well, the, the ants gave me away. <laughs> ah, I see. <laughs> we had an invasion of ants. <laughs> right. But you know what happens <laughs> is is that when parents get into this thing of getting vegetables into their kids and kids resort (laughs) to all sorts of techniques to avoid it, and Uh maybe not everyone goes to such an extreme length as to put the vegetables in the drawer, (laughs) but but we can see kids doing all sorts of things to get out of it, and it's one of the ways in which we get caught into a control control struggle with our kids. (laughs) So so how would you recommend that um, they have a, you know, they get a balanced diet. What would be the first step? Yeah, well, the thing, the first step that I that I would recommend is actually that we start thinking about what is a balanced diet. So that's one of the words that I don't tend to use because in our society, balanced diet has come to mean a lot of different things. Sometimes it means eating healthy food more often than other food, which is really proportion. Sometimes it means eating a variety of foods, and sometimes it means not eating. Um, too much, which is really about moderation. So there really are only three habits that translate everything about nutrition into behavior, and I just mentioned them, so they're proportion, variety, and moderation. Once we start thinking about those instead of how to get vitamins or how to get protein or how to get vegetables into kids, automatically we start thinking about a different way of approaching meal times and and snack times. Um, So that's the first thing I would say is that we need to start thinking about proportion, variety, and moderation and how we teach those to our kids. Mm. No, that's, that's good information, really is. 
you um, you talk about three different rules. Um, in other words, the first rule deciding when your child should eat. Let's talk about the first rule first. Right. Yeah. Well, I think that one of the things that we tend to overlook in um, in our homes when we're thinking about how to get nutrients into our kids is how to create a structure which will help them learn to eat the way we want them to eat. And structure is, you know, it's a sociological term, but it really means just having some guidelines and some rules. If we think about structure as you know, like holding up a building, we want to hold up the, the family eating relationship. So there are a couple of rules that we can put into place, and one of them is what I call the eating zones rule, which is figuring out when you're going to offer food and when you're not going to offer food because constant grazing throughout the day is really not a very good habit. And even though the the current sort of philosophy about eating is that kids need to eat every few hours, um, that's not universally held to be true. And, of course, back when I was a kid it wasn't true. So, And there's mixed results in the research about whether kids really do need to eat so frequently. But what is very clear is that when they graze all day long, they're not hungry at mealtimes, they're not learning actually to be in touch with their hunger and their fullness because they're never really feeling hungry. And then when we layer on top of that, when kids tend to graze, they tend to eat really inferior food. So snacking, which when we're talking about nutrition, we think of it with this sort of idealistic notion that it's about fruits and vegetables, really most kids are snacking on salty snacks like chips mm-hmm. or cookies or candy or, you know, sweetened beverages. So um, we really need to have a little bit of structure so kids know when there's going to be food, but especially so that they know when there's not going to be food. And that helps mm-hmm. kids come to the table ready to eat. And then let's talk about the second rule, which is the rotation rule. Right, yes. So the rotation rule is really so key because the number one complaint that I or frustration that I hear from parents is that they wish that their kids ate a wider variety of foods and would like different flavors. And, and when we think about variety, one of the biggest mistakes that we make is that parents tend to think that Variety means new food, and what variety means is just different. So what happens is they get sort of in this this um, cycle of how do I introduce more variety if I can't get my child to eat new foods, and the rotation rule is the answer. So the rotation rule is really simple. It's the second piece of this feeding structure, and it really is just don't feed the same food two days in a row. And I, I, I keep milk out of that just because so many pediatricians want children to drink milk every day and many children are sort of attached to milk and so that's fine. But for the rest of the diet, the reason for doing this is that it teaches an idea of variety. Remember in the beginning I was talking about we need a new mindset. So the rotation rule gets children to expect to eat something different on different days. And it's that expectation that really goes a long way. Because if you think about it, what most families do, and it's really understandable why they do this, but most families save different for dinner. So we have the same one or two things that we rotate around for breakfast, the same one or two things for lunch, for snack. 
and then dinner is where we really mix it up. But if you look at that from a kid's perspective, especially a young kid's perspective, if children eat, let's say, four times a day, five times a day, six times a day, something like that between meals and snacks, if everything but one is dependable and routine and pretty much the same thing as we had yesterday, then what that teaches as a habit is monotony, repetition. It's not teaching variety. So what we can do is using only the foods that kids already eat and normally accept is we can just start telling them actually the rule that we're not going to eat the same thing two days in a row and then start switching it up. And then what happens is if the children reject that, we know it's not the food because we know that they generally eat the food that we're offering and we know that we're stuck in a control struggle. And once you know you're in a control struggle, then you can use different tactics. The problem is is that when we mix up rotation with new foods, we never know whether it's the attitude of the child at the moment or whether it's something about the food. So the rotation rule really lays the foundation for parent-child interactions around eventually real new foods. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the third, rule is, mm-hmm. yeah, the third rule is make sure you give your kid plenty of choices. And by choices, I don't mean sort of a what do you want to eat, open-ended kind of choice. What I mean is structured choices so that we don't ruin the eating zones rule or the rotation rule, right? We want to make sure that any choice our kids choose is going to be something that's acceptable to us. The reason to do this is that it's the kind of parenting dynamic that works. So most people are familiar with the idea that there are different kinds of parenting styles. And there's one which is called authoritative, which is considered to be the most successful, and it doesn't matter whether we're talking about feeding or sleeping or discipline or anything else like that. (coughs) Excuse me. And that style of parenting is a combination of structure and compassion. So the choices give our kids the compassion within the structure. Hmm. Interesting. What does um, a typical day menu look like for a child that you would recommend Um and it may not necessarily go with the guidelines of choosemyplate.gov. Well, I mean, I, I'm not a nutritionist, so I'm not in the business of making nutrition recommendations. Uh-huh. I think that the more important idea is this, that when we start to try to parse out which foods to eat based on nutrition, we get caught in the details. And we really, it's, a, it's like a forest and a tree kind of thing. We really need to keep our eyes on the forest and not the trees here. So everybody, so let's think about proportion, which is one of the three habits, which is the diet should be dominated by healthy, really healthy foods and not the mediocre foods or the marginal foods. Now, a lot of times people get caught up in wondering how we know the difference between the really healthy foods and the marginal foods. And here, it's really not that difficult because everybody knows there's there's consensus in our society and everybody knows that what the really healthy foods are and which the ones that are sort of junky. So we can pull out the fruits and the vegetables and we can pull out, you know, the the chicken and <clears throat> those kinds of foods and we know and fish and we feel very certain that these are the healthy foods. And we also can pull out the foods that are not healthy, the cookies, uh, the ice cream, but also like, you know, the fried chicken and those kinds of foods. 
And where people get stuck is in the middle, where we're dealing with packaged foods and we can't really read the label or we can't remember whether we should pay attention to sugar or fat or protein and what's healthy and what's not healthy. And the thing is, is that all of those middle-range foods, if we conceptually just think of them as leading us towards the sort of junk and we want to control those foods, then that is going to give us the model for figuring out what we need to feed our kids. So it's really about seeing the world in terms of our children's experiences and where their taste buds are going to be shaped. So if I serve pretzels, which we could argue are are healthier than potato chips, although we could also argue that they're not, from a habits perspective... Right, because p- potato chips and, and pretzels are both sort of salty snacks, as are as are the, all the other salty, like goldfish crackers and veggie booty mm-hmm. and all those kinds of things, right? Mm-hmm. Um, if we think about those foods as being a gateway to the really junky food, then we know we're going to limit it. And if we think about wanting our kids to enjoy fruits and vegetables, we want to serve them foods that are going to open up the flavors and the tastes and the textures of fruits and vegetables. So that's what I would recommend parents do and not think about what exactly they should serve, but which category of food are they serving most frequently, and then think about the taste preferences that they're shaping. It's kind of interesting how taste buds vary from child to child. I wonder scientifically what that's all about. (laughs) Well, you know, here's the thing is that um, they don't vary quite as much as people think that they do because, yeah, I mean, everybody has, you know, children are born with with a preference for the, you know, fatty fatty flavors and sweet flavors, and we know that that's true. And, of course, everybody has their own taste preferences and um, personalities. But here's the thing. Kids who are under five don't have what researchers call stable taste preferences. Their taste preferences are still being worked out. And parents are being told by society that we have to sort of figure out what our kids like. But in actual fact, we're shaping what our kids like. And it doesn't take much to sort of prove that point because otherwise how would we explain the fact that Indian kids like Indian food and Mexican kids like Mexican food and American kids like hot dogs? You know, this is a culturally driven thing. But but here's the really interesting thing. Mm-hmm. It's the language and the way of interacting which makes it seem like kids have very particular taste preferences. So, for oh, instance, how fascinating. we teach children to say they don't like food because that's the only way that a child can legally get out of eating something. You know, like imagine your kid comes to the table and says, oh, well, I really wasn't feeling like chicken tonight. I was really feeling like macaroni. You'd say, well, that's kind of fresh, you know, eat the food I cooked for you, <laughs> right? I mean, we really okay. wouldn't accept it. But if a child comes and says, I don't like this, then you think, oh, well, I can't make them eat it. And we teach our kids to say this because we say things to them like, well, just taste it, and if you don't like it, you don't have to eat it. Ah. It's the the only legal way. When kids get a little bit older, the other Uh legal out is to say, I'm not hungry, right? Uh But Mm -hmm. if you're a child in a family, those are the only two ways to get out of eating, is to say you don't like something or to say that uh, you're not hungry. So what kids have more than stable taste preferences is stable language. (laughs) Interesting. 
and then they get it in their heads that they don't like something because they've spent you know some time saying I don't like it, and mm-hmm. they haven't even ta- and and a lot of times they haven't even tasted it. So it's really about sure. what's in their head as opposed to what's in their taste preferences, and this is really, I mean, it, this is really an issue that comes up because there's so many choices and because we feel like we have to, you know, not force our kids to eat things that they don't like. And I'm not Mm -hmm. a proponent of forcing kids to eat anything at all. I'm not saying that because, you know, we need to teach our children. But if you think about it, in places where children really are hungry, I mean, not the kind of hunger that's temporary, but really are hungry, they're not going to turn their noses up at something. They're not picky. Their taste preferences don't come into it. They eat. So this is We're sort so of a fortunate. product of our culture and and the amount of food we have available, and 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 how we feel about parenting and mm-hmm. the relationship between parents and kids. Well, I noticed that one of your techniques um, for laying the foundation for variety for children in the foods that they eat is what you call rating cards. You want to talk about that? I'm sorry. Say that again. I noticed that um, in laying the foundation for variety for mm-hmm. children and the foods that they eat, that you talk about rating cards that pa- parents can use. Um, teaching no, variety, oh, rating cards, yes. Ra- uh-huh. <laughs> uh, yeah. Teaching variety, um, well, let's step back for a second because okay. the issue here really is that most we have to remember that there's there's a couple of steps that go into learning how to eat new foods and the first step is really learning how to be a good taster and then the second step is really learning how to um eat a, a wider variety of foods and some children can make the leap from learning how to be a taster to learning how to be a good eater almost seamlessly so we forget that there are these steps But other kids, the kids who are sort of the most reluctant to try new foods, really do need to learn how to be a taster. And so rating cards are part of this idea of teaching children how to be good tasters. And what's involved in that is parents scaling back their expectations. So a lot of parents think that they're taking the pressure off their kids by saying, you know, the the sentence I just gave you about just taste it and if you don't like it, you don't have to eat it. But actually that has a lot of pressure built into it because if you hear that through your child's perspective, that means if I do like it, I will have to eat it. And there are many reasons why I might not want to eat it, so I'm not even going to taste it. And when children are reluctant to taste foods that parents want them to taste, it's either because they have sort of a lot of fear and they don't know how to approach tasting food, or it's because there's been a breach of trust with their parents and they don't really believe their parents when their parents say you won't have to eat it. So, And, of course, parents, if we're all being honest, when we provide food at dinner and we say just taste it, we are secretly hoping that you will actually eat it and not just taste it because otherwise then I've got to figure out some other meal for you, right? So the first part is to really scale back your expectations and really just expect your child to taste a very small, and by small I mean sort of pea-sized or smaller 
sample of something. For some kids, that might be too much. They might have Mm -hmm. to smell it first or touch it first or describe it just by looking at it first. But the rating cards is this way of just saying, look, we're going to do, I mean, these aren't the words you would use for them, but sensory education. We're going to talk, we're going to increase your vocabulary, increase your familiarity with foods, and we're going to go after multiple exposures. You know, everybody's heard that you have to expose your child to a food 12 times or 14 times. It might as well be 7 million times as, you know, what it feels like for mom cooking, right? Mm-hmm. And we and most parents give up after four or five times, and here's why. Because when they do the research, those kids are literally just being given a taste, like a pea-sized taste. And if you think about it, what we're doing is saying, well, they've got to eat it seven times or ten times or twelve times before they'll like it, but why would a child eat something that she doesn't like? She's not going to. So it's much easier to get a child to taste something multiple times if what we really are doing is just giving them a pea-sized taste without any expectation that they'll eat it. We can go back to the, the well, you know, the proverbial well, multiple times because all they're doing is tasting, literally just tasting the food. And by rating it, <clears throat> either by saying how they feel about it, whether they liked it um, a lot or just a little bit or they thought it was a, a little bit yucky, or to try and use some more words like it was sweet or it was sour or something like that, they can see that over time their experience with the food changes. And that's really important for them, for everyone to really learn, which is not only do our taste preferences change, especially for little children, as I said, who don't have stable taste preferences, but also every food tastes different every single time because it's, made differently or because, you know, it grew differently. So no two mm-hmm. apples taste exactly alike, et cetera. And that's actually one of the problems with feeding kids processed, manufactured food. I'm I'm not a purist, and I buy a lot of things in the grocery store that are packaged. Um, but if you're working with kids to try and expand their, their palates, think about it. Like every time you open up, a particular brand of blueberry yogurt, if it's going to always taste exactly the same. And that's what the food manufacturers sort of guarantee for you. Whereas mm-hmm. if you're a home cook, if, I, if I'm even just taking my plain yogurt and mixing in a scoop of blueberry jam, some days I'm going to have a, a bigger scoop and some days it's going to be a smaller scoop. And True. So there's subtle variety in the way the food tastes. And, and that's something that when you do multiple tasting with the rating card, becomes clear to children that things are going to taste different over time. At what age would you recommend um, you start the taste thing with them? Well, I think that that children, you know, every family is going to be different here. So most young children are, are willing to open their mouths and eat anything. And so that's when parents should really work their hardest to give their kids the widest variety of foods before what's called the neophobic stage sets in, which can happen anywhere sort of give or take six to eight months around the two-year mark. Um, But it's an approach that, of course, we want to use it with um, concerted effort if we have a child who we would be calling picky or who is reluctant or who's really stuck. But it's an approach that parents can use with all kids because – that's how we should be thinking about 
exposing our children and building trust. The whole situation is really about the parent-child dynamic and figuring it out, figuring out what it, each individual child needs to learn. So it, it's, hard to, it's hard to answer that question with specifics, but what I'd like to say is that I never once would have given my daughter at any age a taste of food that wasn't a little smidge. And it was only when it was clear that she was able to leap from tasting to eating that I brought that expectation to the table. Ah, interesting. Let's do a little scenario. Suppose you have a child, it's getting ready to go to a birthday party, but they're telling you that they're starving to death. What do you do with that? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean... Here's the thing is that even though we can talk about structure, which is where we want to have some guidelines for when we eat and when we don't eat, we want to be responsive to our kids, first of all. So we, if our kids are truly starving in that scenario, then I'd say, you know, feed them. But the other lesson is to teach children how to cope with events like parties. So the question is, how soon is the party and and, you know, what kind of food is going to be there and all that kind of stuff. So um, it's not about, you know, managing a party is takes a lot more than, you know, just sort of having healthy food, and and uh, we, we need to think about those kinds of issues too. So we're really talking about trying to identify if they have taste hunger, practical hunger, or emotional hunger. Well, that is one of the conversations that's important to have with children, especially children who have a tendency to be overeaters. Um, but one of the things that is unfortunately a byproduct of the way we have been thinking about food in our culture here, this really is not about blaming parents because parents are really embedded in the culture. These are the messages that we're getting from our media and our public health officials, and it's our dialogue. But one of the unintended consequences is that we are inadvertently teaching our children to be emotional eaters. And some of the research shows that this can happen as early as age two. I mean, think about it. Like when my daughter was getting her vaccinations when she was little, she would get a shot and then the doctor would whip out a lollipop. And, you know, what does that teach other than when you're upset, you comfort yourself with food. So like when that happened to me, it, I I really worked really hard to make sure my daughter didn't see the lollipop until I had soothed her with a hug. And once she had calmed down from the the pain and the shock and you know the distraught of the shot, once once that was over, then I would give her the lollipop. I'm not against the lollipop at all, but I'm against mm-hmm. teaching kids to soothe themselves with sweets. So, and we do it all the time. I mean, I I. You know, if you need a few extra minutes of quiet time while you're on the phone, you give your kids, uh, you know, a snack. My daughter cried a lot in the car when she was young because she didn't like being in the car. So we we quickly learned that if we gave her her snack while she, we were driving, she wouldn't cry and taught her a terrible <laughs> habit of eating every time she got in the car. I mean, oh, we soothe <laughs> boo-boos with brownies. I mean, we, we reward, you know, good <laughs> grades and good behavior and so it's just it's out of control, and <laughs> so one of no, the conversations. And then, and then you end up growing up into an adult, and you can't control it. 
Well, exactly. Well, you know, you can't feed kids one way and expect them to grow up and eat a different way. That's one thing we know for sure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, one of the conversations that we do need to have with our kids is that there are reasons beyond hunger that people eat. We can't pretend that we only eat because we're hungry because actually what that does is it teaches kids to say they're hungry in order to get the food that they want. So, And here's mm-hmm. a story about that. I was once at a at a at a uh, a luncheon that was a birthday party celebration, and there was a young child who was about I don't know five or six, and she got to the end of her meal and, and you know she was she was full and she stopped eating and she announced I'm 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 full and that was fine, and then later about maybe twenty or thirty minutes later we were back at the house and and out came the birthday cake for the celebration it wasn't her birthday, um, but she saw this birthday cake and she said oh, that looks great, I'm so hungry. And it was so clear to me that she wasn't hungry, but she wanted the cake. And I'm not really concerned about kids lying to parents and saying, I'm hungry, I want the cake. Mm -hmm. What I am concerned about is that every time a child says out loud, I'm hungry, I want that cake, they're convincing themselves that they're hungry. And Mm -hmm. that that's the only reason. Like every time you want to eat, you have to think you're hungry. And starting to get confused about when you're hungry and when you're not hungry is actually a precursor for overeating. So it's important to tell kids from a very early age that sometimes we do eat because something looks good. Or sometimes, yeah, right? And when that happens, what do we do? We eat maybe a smaller portion or, you know, we sort of take that into consideration for what we're going to eat later and we try and maintain proportion. But... We'd, we don't want to create a situation where children have to either lie to themselves or lie to us in, in order to eat because that's just really a recipe for disaster. True, and, they, and it probably ends up being a lifetime issue. I, uh, sure. I was, watching, I was watching a TV show the other evening, and it was for entrepreneurs mm-hmm. who um, had um, started companies with certain products, et cetera, and they were looking for funding. You probably know what show I'm talking about. At any rate, uh, this one individual had created what looked like a plastic cookie jar with a top that had a self-locking time. <laughs> I saw that. <laughs> yes. <in it>. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so that for us adults, if you had right. some cookies in the house or candies that you just wanted to eat all at once, you just put plop them in that little puppy and turn them. They're safe from you, exactly. Well, okay. think about how yeah. think about how we learn that. I mean, some of it is the food, right? It's being engineered so that it lights up all the pleasure centers in our brain That's and it true. makes us want to have more and more. So some of it is the food, so it's not all our fault. But <laughs> In in the way that we uh, glorify sweets and treats in this society, I mean, just think about it. The whole nutrition discussion has actually given the tasty dimension to junky food because the healthy foods are healthy. So what happens is when we describe healthy food, we say, eat this because it has vitamin A and it's got protein and it'll mm-hmm. make you grow up big and strong. And we never really talk about how delicious it is. And when we talk about the junky food, 
we don't say, oh, this has got, you know, protein in it or because, you know, it doesn't have any of those. Re- I mean, sometimes it does, but that's not how we talk about it. So since we don't talk about the junkie food in terms of the nutrients that they have, we start to say they're delicious. So, I mean, you've never heard anyone say anything about brownies like, oh, you should eat these because they'll make you grow up big and strong. No, people go, brownies, yum. But with the broccoli, we don't go, broccoli, yum. We go, broccoli, that'll make you grow up. It's kind of what it's. It's what I think of as the medicalization of the meal. Uh-huh. So we eat for we eat for health and medical reasons, not for pleasure. And then pleasure is associated only with the junk. And then the junk is just more and more and more attractive. It's so true. And like you said, it lights up certain taste buds. And before you know yeah. it, you've eaten the entire package when you really only wanted a couple. Well, you think you only wanted a couple. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. Well, I don't think I only wanted a couple. <laughs> <laughs> and is a lifestyle change? There's no question about it. Um, trying to eat healthier and to teach your kids to do it. It is. And um, when we do that, we need to think in broad strokes so that it makes it easier to do because when we start to think about individual foods and we put them into good and bad camps or we start to say, I have to eat more of this, and you know, like if we just think about the overall picture, it's much easier because then there's no forbidden food and it's all about how to put things into your diet in a way that really works. And not just works in terms of health and nutrition, but works in terms of your family's schedule, in terms of holidays, in terms of your own food preferences, in terms of everything, and uh, and it really makes it a much easier task to just think about these three habits, proportion, variety, and moderation, instead of to think about all the different foods and all the different nutrients and what we should do mm-hmm. and what we shouldn't do. And yeah. I can't even follow that. You know, like, does anyone even know with nutrition, like, you know, are we supposed to eat eggs? Are we not supposed to eat eggs? I mean, it seems like things change all the time. But proportion, variety, and moderation never changes. That's very true. Mm-hmm. So I like the way you talk about how we have our growing foods, our fun foods, mm-hmm. and our treat foods. That's right. And that's what I was saying before about, you know, our growing foods are really the healthiest foods out there, and we all know what they are. Our fun foods are sort of the middle ground foods, and the treat foods are the treat foods. And if you, if we're honest, most of us are feeding our kids out of the middle ground, you know, the chicken nuggets, the mac and cheese, the goldfish. They're, the foods that are in that category are what I call the at least diet because parents mm-hmm. spend a lot of time saying, well, at least it has protein <laughs> or at least, you know, at least it's got calcium. And we know that we're making these nutritional compromises. We're doing it to get some nutrients into our kids. But in the but in the process, what we're doing is we're actually shaping their taste preferences in the wrong direction. I like to think about the fun foods as what I sort of like gateway drugs, because they're really getting. I mean, and many food manufacturers know this because they say this is how they advertise the food. They'll say something like, you know, it's healthy enough that mom will approve it, but tasty enough that the child will like it. So where is it pushing their taste preferences towards the junk and and here's something to think about, right? If you if you gave your child a bowl of oatmeal, an oatmeal breakfast bar, 
and an oatmeal cookie, and you said, which of these two are most alike? I don't think there's any question that the breakfast bar and the cookie would be the two that were similar. And so what is that teaching our kids about what they should eat? So it really is about thinking in terms of food, less about health and nutrition, but in terms of where it's pushing our kids' taste preferences and where they think they ought to eat. Well, we talked earlier about how kids under five don't have any stable taste preferences. Mm-hmm. And right. let's just give an example of a parent who is just letting the child, I mean not letting the child, feeding feeding the child in those middle group of um, of foods that we just talked right. about. How, yeah. And I'm not a psychologist. I know you're a sociologist. How would you start introducing the good stuff back into their diet? Well, there's two things that we have, well, there's two things that we really have to do. You know, the first thing is that we have to uh, put the structure in place that I was describing, which in the book I call the big fix, which is the eating zones, the rotation rule, and the choices. So we want to start making sure that our children are rotating through the foods that they're eating, the foods that they're already eating, even though that doesn't seem like a satisfying change because it's not pushing them in the right direction yet, it is the first small step. And remember, every change that we make, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> every small change that we make has to be small enough that the child will do it without completely rebelling. So the rotation rule is really key here. And we, we, we keep the, the actual new foods aside for a second. Eventually we want to do the teaching children how to taste foods and then they'll eventually eat them. But let's just put that over the side for a minute. So we implement the rotation rule, and we start doing it with the foods that our kids are already readily eating. And once the rotation rule is in place in a way that it's working and we're not struggling with it anymore, we start to look at the overall diet and like write down everything your child eats, whether it's for breakfast, lunch, dinner, or snack. And then we can start subtly shifting the rotation in a couple of directions. So one direction to shift the rotation would be to just make sure that we're varying taste and texture, things like that, so that children get more accustomed to having different foods from day to day, even though we're still working with the foods that they're used to eating. Because sometimes what happens is we think we're feeding kids different foods, but we're really giving them sweet foods all day long. Here's an example. Let's say you start out with maple, brown sugar, you know, oatmeal, and then you go on to a, a sweetened yogurt, and then maybe it's peanut butter and jelly for lunch, and maybe there's an apple juice. All those foods are sweet. <clears throat> Sometimes we give our kids food. I, I tell people all the time that, you know, sometimes we're giving our kids pizza three times a day. We just call it something else. So you might have a quesadilla. You might have pasta with cheese. You might have a grilled uh-huh. cheese sandwich, mm-hmm. right, all day long, uh, cheese and crackers. So that's the mm. same food all the time. So that's one way we can tweak the rotation rule. We can start looking at the foods through that lens and say, are we really varying it? And, and then we can go through the, the set of foods that our kids eat and vary it more deliberately. And the other thing we can do is that we can start making foods that are on the healthier end of the spectrum show up a little bit more frequently in their diet. So most Mm -hmm. children have a handful of vegetables that they eat, and most kids have a handful of fruits that they eat. 
and we could make those come into the rotation a little bit more frequently, even if we're still varying them. So, for instance, if your child only eats apples, we can serve apples every day, which might seem like a violation of the rotation rule, but we can serve green apples one day, red apples one day, applesauce, apple chips, apple <laughs> slices with cinnamon on them. App, you know, you get it. There's lots of ways to make variety with apples. So we do that with the rotation rule, and we can manipulate it until we get a much more um, proportional diet. At the same time, we're working on teaching kids how to become good tasters, and those two things come together, and they mm-hmm. will change the child's diet. Oh, that's great. That was wonderful information. It really was. People people well, think that there's going to be a simple one thing you can do, but it really is a whole system, and we have to change mm-hmm. the whole system. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it takes work. It takes time. It takes planning, but it, it's really worth it in the long run for the overall health of of your kids. And once you get the new mindset, it doesn't take that long. It's not really that okay. hard. It's just changing the way you think. Yeah, the mindset. Mm-hmm. Giving up a lot of the uh, the junk food items can be challenging, and giving up sugar can be very challenging. And like you but said, the, you don't have to give it up. You just start that's right. bringing it down in moderation. You have to just think about the concept of proportion so that it gets into the diet in the right way. Exactly. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, because we, you know, as a society consume way too much sugar. It's in everything that's packaged. That's true. But the idea of the growing foods, fun foods, and treat foods gets you out of that because if you're going to go with your gut and move towards the foods that you know are the healthiest, you're automatically going to be out of the packaged foods Mm -hmm. for the bulk of the Mm -hmm. diet. And if you're out of packaged foods for the bulk of the diet, then where you're getting those packaged foods and the sugar is going to be less of a problem. And then the other thing is is that even though that there's sugar, and there's a lot of discussion about this if you read the papers and the Internet, there's a lot of discussion about how there's sugar in everything, your ketchup and your salad dressing and everything. Mm-hmm. But the truth mm-hmm. is, is that that's not where the majority of the sugar problem is. And so if we think about just reducing the amount of times that we feed our kids sweet flavors, So we pay attention to how sweet does that chocolate milk taste and how often am I giving a sweet flavor. We will automatically start eliminating sweet. And then when you're getting the sugar through the trace things in the ketchup, it's really not a problem. And ketchup is not not our major problem in America, soda and juice and, you um, you know, apple juice and grape juice and the kind of juice that we give our kids. That is just pure sugar. Um, Mm -hmm. And, in fact, fruit concentrate, which is what apple juice is, you know, it's reconstituted. But fruit concentrate, Mm -hmm. when when it's put in another product, is actually considered sugar. So (laughs) these are the foods. If we could eliminate uh, those things, juice and, and chocolate, milk, and all those kinds of things, we would not have to worry about, you know, ketchup and salad dressing. Well, listeners... We're about to run out of time with our guest, Dina Rose. We've been talking about how to teach your children good nutrition and good eating habits. 
And basically, we've been talking about how to teach adults as well, (laughs) (laughs) how to manage the process. Dina, is there anything else that you'd like to to add to um, our interview today? Just the idea that... um that we really want to remember that we're not really feeding little kids. We're feeding kids who are, you know, really the adults <laughs> that they're going to be. And so we want to set them up for the lifetime of healthy eating and not mm-hmm. compromise not compromise those habits for the, the sake of the immediate meal. Great. Well, it's been a fantastic interview with you today. Would you like to tell our listeners how they can reach you and where they can purchase your book? Sure. Well, the book is It's Not About the Broccoli, uh, Three Habits to Teach Your Kids for a Lifetime of Healthy Eating, and it's available wherever books are sold, on Amazon and Barnes & Noble, etc. Um, and people can reach me on my blog, which is itsnotaboutnutrition.com, and everyone should know that I offer free 30-minute consultations for people who want to have a quick chat and see if they can brainstorm, and you can, you can sign up for those on my website also. Oh, wonderful. That's a wonderful gift to give to people. Well, thank you again for joining us, Dina. I can't thank you enough for all the wonderful information and what you've taught our audience today. It was my pleasure. I enjoyed our conversation, Denise. Take care. Okay, bye-bye. All right, listeners. I I think that you've probably been given a lot to think about today. We will be on air again next Wednesday, so please, I want to thank you personally for all your support this year. We've had wonderful guests and quite a large audience. Again, thank you so much. We celebrate our listeners worldwide and invite you to contact Denise at www.healthmedianow.com with any questions you may have. And follow her on Twitter at Health Media Now and Facebook at Health Media Now. For those interested in an advertising campaign on her show, contact Lisa at knowledgeworkspub.com. Be sure to visit Got Cancer? Now What? for information on Denise Messenger's award-winning book, Got Cancer? Now What? The information on this radio show is not intended to replace a one-on-one relationship with a qualified healthcare professional, and it's not intended as medical advice. It's intended as a sharing of knowledge and information from our guest and the experience of Denise and her community. We encourage you to make your own healthcare decisions based upon your research and in partnership with a qualified healthcare professional of your choice. Thank you for listening.